the God's word as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with a spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over against the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the, the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. He answered, Here am I, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise, uh, rise against me, to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. The king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who, were, who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkey and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe.
The Lord reigns over tyrants. Saul has become a tyrant. The previous chapter, 1 Samuel tells of the events leading up to this very moment, a dark chapter in the history of Israel. In fleeing King Saul's murderous wrath, David stopped at the tabernacle to talk with the priest to Himelech. He got supplies. He inquired after the Lord. But in his fear, David had lied to Ahimelech. He lied about his reason for being there. And in doing so, David put Ahimelech in a position of danger. For there was a man there, a man named Doeg from Edom, who saw David and who eventually turned him in, reporting it back to King Saul. Chapter 22 now tells the rest of the story, a story that reveals the tyrant that King Saul had become. In light of Saul's murderous commands, it's important for us to also hear how this passage teaches that the Lord God rules over even this bloody murder that Saul perpetuates. It may seem from our perspective that the wicked get away with murder. It may seem that they even prosper in this life. But God knows all things, and he holds all people accountable. The Lord reigns over tyrants. I want to begin by going through the account here, for there's some things that deserve to be explained. I'm going to walk through the history of this account to underline the, uh, the wickedness of Saul and of Doeg. Verse 6 describes Saul as staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, the spear in his hand and his servants standing all about him. And on one hand, this might seem like this is what a king would look like. The location is a place that was often a place of judgment, the spear in his hand was a sign of authority and of judgment, and wise counselors gathered around him. But as the scene unfolds, it begins to look somewhat different. Instead, it looks more like one of the old spaghetti westerns where the bad guy is leaning on the on the rail outside the bar and his buddies are all around him, right? This is the king who is supposed to be interested in the rule and governance of his country and yet here he is so angry and so motivated by his hatred of David that he's left all of that and he and his cronies are out searching for David. There's a rabble that is around a powerful but unstable man who is prone to violence intent on one thing. And it comes through in his words to his servants. Here are his countrymen. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, and he, he has his buddies around him, and he's, he says to them, he berates them for allowing David to escape and, and even suggesting that they, they had helped him. And he says, you're not going to get anything from David. 
You may think that you could prosper by following after him, but I'm the king. Listen to me. And why didn't any one of you tell me what was going on? Jonathan, my own son, turned against me. And you didn't tell me. Gordon Ketty observes the dilemma that Saul's men face. How do you tell bad news to a tyrant? Right? If you bring him bad news, off with your head. If you hide it from him, you, you're killed as well. This is, this is what's going on under King Saul. And in the midst of that outburst, here comes Doeg. I saw David going to Nob, to the priests in the tabernacle. They gave him information. They inquired of the Lord for him. They gave him provisions and weapons. Doeg was opportunistic. In his words and in his actions, words that David in Psalm 52 rightly identifies. He says, you violent man whose tongue is sharp as a razor. You see, Doeg used this opportunity to get in good with the man of power. To get in good by accusing the priest of the Lord of wrongdoing and lying about it. Do you notice that he didn't tell the whole truth about David's little deception and how Ahimelech was, was acting in good faith, thinking that David was the king's man upon the king's mission? Odoeg leaves that out conveniently. He lies in his silence at least. And this information enrages Saul, so much so that he summons Ahimelech to appear before him. Ahimelech and all of his fellow priests, his, his relations as well, uh, that, that were serving as priests. And Ahimelech comes at the summons of his king, and he confirms that he had indeed given aid to David. And in a sense, why not? This is the king's man. This was his own son-in-law. This is the one who was trusted by Saul himself to lead his armies. Why would Ahimelech treat him any different? And so he denies the charge that Saul made that he had enabled David to rise up against him. He, he, he denies that he inquired of God for him, which Doeg had accused. And this could be taken in either two ways. Either it is Doeg's out-and-out lie to further his position, or he is denying that, uh, that he inquired as Doeg, uh, Doeg accuses in order to rise up against Saul. He adds these words, Far be it from me, let not the king impute anything to a servant, or to any of the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. 
but Saul wouldn't hear it. He ordered his guards to kill Ahimelech and all of the priests that were there. But they wouldn't do it. You, there, you, get the, you get, again, the sense of a powerful tyrant that even his men are trembling underneath him, and yet they wouldn't lift their hands against the priests, the Lord's anointed. So Saul commanded Doeg to do it, and he did. Single-handedly, he slaughtered Ahimelech and 85 priests of the Lord. And then he went at Saul's command and he killed man, woman, and child in the city that they came from. And even the animals of that city harkens back to the, uh, uh, the way in which many cities were dealt with in that time, taking them down to the ground. Ketty uh, describes it in this way. Saul had acquired that hallmark of all true tyrants. He had declared war on his own people and had added mass murder to the instruments of his government. This is what happens when evil is unrestrained. Before I go on to speak of the Lord reigning, let me just observe that this is a lesson for leadership in all time. When evil is unrestrained in leadership, it takes advantage of that power, and woe to those who suffer under it. It's very easy for us to point here or there, across the seas, to powerful nations and crazy rulers but our country needs to hear this. When evil is unrestrained, woe to those who suffer under it. And there are other forms of leadership that need to hear this as well. Leadership in all levels of life need to be restrained by God's word. Whether that be leadership in the church or the community or the home. The Lord reigns over tyrants. I've retold this story and worked through its details so that you would understand some of the, some of the aspects of what was happening here and to let the reality of Saul's bloody tyranny sink in. This is what unrestrained evil does. But at the same time, this passage brings out an age-old question. If God is all-powerful, if God is sovereign as we teach, and if God is good, how could such a thing happen? This passage offers insight and answers. The answer is that the Lord reigns over tyrants. And I'll show it in four ways. First, God is a righteous judge who will not let the wicked go unpunished. Here, I'm so thankful for that providence of a psalm meditation on Psalm 52 this morning. 
that's the message of Psalm 52. God is a righteous judge. And he will not let the wicked go unpunished. There is a righteous indignation that David expresses over this bloody event carried out by Saul and Doeg. As a prophet of God, David speaks. And he voices the Lord's judgment on King Saul and on Doeg. It may seem that the wicked get away with murder, but in the end, God will call everyone to give an account for their deeds. He will judge the wicked forever. As in Psalm 52, I would encourage you that if you have suffered some injustice, if the perpetrator seems to have gotten away with it, remember that God knows all things. Nothing can be hid from God. He himself speaks. Jesus, our Savior, speaks that justice is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And for more on this, you can turn to Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 6 and following, where Christ is shown on the throne of heaven, holding the scroll of the history of the world, that he unrolls, that he directs the history of mankind, which includes the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the terrors of this world that include the wars of mankind, the bloodthirsty murders of wicked men, and even death itself, that pale horse. Or if you need more, go back to my psalm meditation on Psalm 52. Read it, pray it, meditate on it, sing it. God reigns over tyrants. Secondly, and this is an important aspect about answering that question of why, if God is sovereign, why could this, how could this happen? Secondly, Saul's wickedness happened in fulfillment of God's warning. The passage reveals an aspect of God's sovereignty that is often missed. Saul's wickedness happened in fulfillment of God's warning. If you turn the calendar back and turn your Bible back to two different portions, you'll find this. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, you'll find this that God pronounced judgment on Eli and all of his house for his sins and the way in which he, as the priest of God, had abused his position. And because of his sin, God pronounced that Eli and his house would be cut off. And Abiathar is a descendant of Eli. God was bringing about a righteous judgment 
that he had proclaimed beforehand. And then flip a few chapters further to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And there you'll find this. The children of Israel chafed and complained over the way in which God was ruling over them. They chafed and complained and said that they wanted a king like all the nations around them. They complained against Samuel's leadership. They complained against God himself. And they rejected his leadership. When I preached on chapter 8, I said that God responded by giving them what they wanted. Note that it's not always a good thing when God gives you what you want. They wanted a king like the nations around them, and that's what they got. And God warned them of this. Listen to his words in 1 Samuel 8. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. And it's a longer passage. I'll pick out a few. He will take your sons to serve in his army and in his house and on his farms. He will take your daughters to work for him. He will take your fields and vineyards and a portion of your harvest for his own use to give to his people. He will take your servants, your livestock, and you will be his servants. And then listen to this. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. So there's more at stake here than just the wickedness of Saul. God was at the same time disciplining the house of Israel. You might say that they had made this bed by asking for Saul and they had to lie in it. They had, a they had asked for Saul and that is what they got. We, lived in, we live in troubled times with wars and rumors of war. And by way of application, let me just remind you that the Lord reigns over tyrants. And that he sometimes uses them to accomplish more than meets the eye. I also caution you to recognize that God hasn't told you why all these things happen. So I caution you from proclaiming judgment where you don't know what's going on. Instead, recognize that we do have a place to humbly cry out to the Lord when there is oppression and when there is persecution. We can cry out to a God who does reign over all things. We can pray that the Lord would blind the eyes of the tyrants, that he would catch the wicked in the nets that they set. And at the same time, we can take these to heart and pray that we too would be disciplined as necessary. That we would cry out to the Lord as our only God. Thirdly, in this passage, we learn about God's dealings with man and that God further shaped David to serve as king. As I've been preaching through 1 Samuel, I've often called attention to certain biblical truths about leadership that come through. And we've seen negative and positive in all of this. In this case, God used an event to further humble David. He was training David in his eventual role as king. 
And David does something here that you don't often see today because David took responsibility for his actions. What do you often see today when someone in leadership is found out? Well, you see the spin factory get rolling and uh, explanations start coming out of the mouth and excuses are being told. And David could have done all of those things. He could have blamed Saul. He could have uh, left all of it on, uh, on what Saul was doing. He could have made excuses. Uh, he could have hidden, but he didn't. He acknowledged the part he played. I knew, I knew, I knew. God forgive me, I knew when I saw Doeg that day. I knew he would tell Saul. I have caused the death of all of your family. He even takes up some of the consequences. David can't bring back the dead, but he can care for Abiathar. Stay with me. Saul's hunting me too. He's hunting you. You don't have to be afraid with me. You'll be safe with me. He provides protection for the oppressed. He models the loving and powerful rule of God who hears the needy when they cry. He is the one who delivers the poor and the oppressed. He is the one who rises up to, to be an advocate for the widow and the orphan and so on. David is learning these lessons of godly leadership in a way that foreshadows the coming of Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Which leads to one last enemy. The final enemy of death. It's been on my mind recently. Imagine that. And there's grief and glory in that, the words that I've been using. But today I want you to hear the righteous indignation of Psalm 52. And the righteous indignation of God against sin and its consequences. I'm going to give just a teaser because I want to develop this more when we come to Easter. There is a final enemy that the Bible describes in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the last enemy of death. And Christ must reign until he puts all of his enemies underneath his feet. Even that last great enemy, death, Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans, he says that death has reigned from Adam until now. And Hebrews says that the human race has been kept in bondage to the fear of death. 
but Christ reigns over all tyrants. He brings even death under his feet. For he suffered death itself so that we may live. And he rose again in declaration of that victory. And he will come again fully and finally to defeat death. That last tyrant will indeed be done away with. And along with David in Psalm 52, we can say, why Boast you, O mighty man. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? It is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ, who reigns against over all tyrants. Amen. Let's pray. Even so, Lord, come quickly. We depend on you in life and in death. We thank you for our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that your kingdom would come in all of its manifestations, ruling over tyrants in this world and ruling over the enemy, Satan, and ruling over death itself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing together Psalm 9b. As you sing it, take up these words of the Lord's justice that is displayed against all of his enemies. There is a place for righteous indignation and for rejoicing that God does indeed reign. Let's sing Psalm 9b. Please stand to sing. Sing praise to the Lord who in Zion does dwell among all the peoples his great doings tell when blood he avenges his memory is clear the cry of the poor never fades from his ear Lord see what I suffer from malice and hate have mercy oh lift me away from death's gate in gates of the daughter of Zion oh praise rejoicing in your mighty power to save the nations are sunk in the Keep. 
You are mere men. As men and women, we need a savior. And as this psalm describes, arise, Lord, that man may not make himself strong. To save us from our sins, God sent a champion. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. He suffered death so that you might live. He rose again as testimony of the acceptance of that sacrifice. He will come again to fully and finally defeat every enemy. That is prefigured here in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, not prefigured, it's demonstrated. That's not even powerful enough, is it? It is communicated to you. It is given to you by the Spirit of God. It is applied to you. That Jesus Christ, our Savior, laid himself down so that you might live, that your sins might be forgiven. The bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is a sign that is given to us until Christ comes again, that authority that he has to judge all. And that judgment does give us pause. It warns us not to take or to eat unworthily, not recognizing the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we speak of this as a sacrament that is given to the church. It's given to those who, who know that they are sinners and have cast themselves upon the mercy of God. We sum that in Psalm 9, that the mercy of God is proclaimed in all of his judgments. It's a mercy that executes a just judgment on the wicked so that we might live. I'd like you to hear those words of institution and recognize that God, who reigns over tyrants, has sent us a savior. Read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I received from the Lord which I, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He comes. 